Good evening, everybody. It's good to see my family. All you are my family, and those of you that are <clears throat> going to get this podcast somewhere from now, whenever. We welcome all of you that have joined us live tonight uh, around the globe. And those of you who get this podcast, we are thankful for that you participate with us in uh, God's Word. <clears throat> Got a lot going on in our world, our nation. We've had some stuff going here with us, even the pastor. And so we just want to give God praise that He's always on His throne. Amen. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this moment we have to spend with you and with each other. And uh, we thank you for your word. You've magnified your word above your name. <laughs> and we have, that's, our, that's where we can stand firm and have our uh, footing sure, Lord. And we know your word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will not. And that's where we need to build our lives. And we're thankful, Lord, that You've not left us to ourselves, Lord, but you have given us your word and your guidance. And we just give you praise for that. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> Let's go to Hosea chapter 10. I had my first intense sneeze today. Now that, that hurt a little bit. <laughs> yeah, my first intense. I've been trying to avoid that. I, I had two... Two incidents today that hurt a little bit. I, there, I looked beside me one point today, and there was a big black spider. He wasn't an itsy bitsy spider. He was, a, and I reacted, so I went after him with my hand. That hurt, and then, uh, um, then I sneezed, and that was hurt. But, but I'm getting better every day, and so I'm thankful for that. Uh, and I've had some good news reports from people who've. Uh, been through this and know people that a lot of people say they feel better on the other side and they felt in forever. So I'm looking forward to that. <clears throat> All right, let's go to Hosea chapter 10. And we know that God has been speaking. And, and I, let me give you a little backdrop that maybe I hadn't given you before. We know that Hosea and Isaiah were contemporaries, but Hosea was a little before Isaiah. They overlapped. And that's important to understand because when you hear what Hosea is saying or what the Holy Spirit is saying through Hosea, then you start remembering what God started saying through Isaiah. It starts to be like a puzzle. You start seeing it weave together. Uh, so it's probably Hosea was talking and possibly uh, was already written down before Isaiah had all of his stuff pinned down and certainly spoken. So Hosea is just a little, maybe in the little before Isaiah, and then Isaiah comes up and they go work together for a pretty good season. But Hosea, and the reason that's important because of what you're going to hear tonight. So Hosea, we went into verses 1 and 2, if you can remember back that far. Um, but we're going to just pick up with verse 1 again. Israel empties his vine. He uh, brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillars. So basically what Israel's doing, the northern kingdom at this point, God is considering them like an adulterous wife. That's how he's viewing them. He's, that's how he's speaking to them. That's what he sees. He sees them as a wife that's gone away from her husband and doing her own thing. And that's basically what you're reading there. They're just 
doing their own thing, trying to make their own way, and that's getting them in a deeper hole. He said, their heart is divided. Now, that is a big problem in the world today, and that's a problem even in the church. People's hearts are divided. They got one uh, foot out in the world and one foot in, the, in, in God's kingdom. Or at least they're try- they, they've got it made up in their mind that that's the way it is. Their heart's divided. He said, now they are held guilty. Uh, he will, speaking of the Lord, He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars because they've done all this stuff apart from Him. They've done it in their own strength. They've made it about themselves. And so, uh, you know, you, I don't know if they would have identified it this way back in that time, but like Paul said, you know, they're, they're just full of hooks. They've made life all about themselves. Eros, love that's motivated by self-centeredness. And that's what happens to us. If we have a divided heart, we begin to pursue our own agendas. We begin to do our own thing. We begin to make life about us instead of about Christ. And so all of our plans and all of our stuff, it's basically based on what we desire, what we want, what we think's best. And not only now, but even our future plans. You know, it's like I'm basing this based on what I want to do, what I'd like to do, instead of hearing from God. Maybe God wants you to do something different. You know, maybe God has a different plan than you have. And that's one of the things that I've really been refocused on after this life event that I've just come through is that, hey, I don't want to run so many years and say, God, I've put my time in. I want God to direct my steps until I die. The steps of a righteous man, the Bible says, are ordered of the Lord. And I, you know, I'm looking at everything different. You know, you can't have a life event like that and not take inventory and look at things. So here's how retirement looks for me. I can't really retire from preaching the Word, I don't guess, but I'll have to slow down someday. But it looks like this. My retirement looks like going to the children's home on the reservation and spending three weeks and loving people. That's what retirement looks like for me. I don't want to stop giving of myself. I don't want to stop serving the Lord. I don't want to stop loving others. We'll have time to rest on the other side. This world's all going to burn to the ground anyway, right? And so it, it just, I want to make sure that whatever I'm doing, it's being directed by the Lord. You know, I, I watched him orchestrate and direct so many things with, with not knowing anybody or anything in the last three weeks that I've got even greater confidence that he can do that, that he'll go before us and he will orchestrate things and direct them in a way that brings glory and honor to him. Now, so that is the other thing that's really starting to motivate me is, Is my life, whether it's what I eat, where I go, what I do, how I handle my finances, is all of that designed in my life to bring glory to God? Or is it all about what I think I should be doing? See, that's that's really the thing that the Holy Spirit is going deep on me with. I believe the Holy Spirit is driving deep inside of me and saying, I want everything you do. To bring glory and honor to Jesus. Even in the private moments, right? Even things that other people don't know about. How you may invest your money or how you may do this or do that. Everything we do should bring glory and honor to God. Because I wouldn't have nothing without Him. Zero. And so I want whatever I do, how I treat others, how I eat, 
how I conduct my life, how I use to choose to use my finances or material goods or whatever, my, my time as I get older. I want it all to glorify God. I want everything to glorify God. For now, they say, we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. And so Israel got like we've got here in America. If I could just take you back to 9-11 when the towers came down, we had congresspeople from both sides of the aisle quoting scripture that they didn't know a thing about. They were misquoting it. Both sides were misquoting it. And what, you know what they were using it for? They were using it for their own end, their own means. we got to be careful with that. You, you don't use God's Word to fit you. You and I come and fit ourselves to God's Word. We don't make the Word of God fit us. We bring our lives here to be fitted to it. And so this is what Israel was doing. They turned the whole system to make it about themselves. And so they pulled out a scripture that maybe fits their cause or whatever. And he says, They have spoken words, swearing falsely, making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like a hemlock and furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the call of Beth Avon. Avon, for it is people mourn for it, and the priests shriek for it because its glory has departed from it. Now, once God starts judging a nation or people, family, or a person, uh, it's trouble. Uh, Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. God knows everything about us. You know, even before God sets in to judge a nation or to judge a group of people or to judge somebody individually, He knew everything about them the whole time. What pauses, and that's the word I would like to maybe use, what pauses, what causes... The pause. Why would God just not judge everything just right now? Because of His mercy. He is a, he, the Bible said He is long-suffering. Um, he's a long-sufferer. The Bible says, and Peter said, God is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing, that all, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come under repentance. So God's not slack. You know, the world would say, ah, if God was who He said He was, whatever, fill in the blank. God's not slack. He's long-suffering. And the reason He's long-suffering is because of the cross. He hung His Son on the cross, uh, illustrating His long. Now, here's something I want you to be careful. Do not use this word about God. He's not tolerant. If He were tolerant... He would have never nailed his son. That's a double negative, but I'm using it anyway. He would have never nailed his son to a tree. You don't nail your son to a tree if you're tolerant. If you're tolerant, you'll say, Ah, let's don't sacrifice my son. Let's just make a deal with him. But when you're long-suffering and merciful and, and not willing that any would perish... Then you nail your son to a tree. God is not tolerant. He's merciful. Those two words are miles apart. So if you're doing your own thing and you, you feel like you may be getting by with it or God's just not really paying attention or whatever, 
Don't mistake that for God being okay with it. He's not okay with our sin. If He were okay with our sin, He would have never nailed His Son to a tree. God is being merciful to you and I. He's being long-suffering. Miles, those are miles apart, right? That's why when you get into Romans and you talk about God's will, which is good and acceptable and perfect, there's not three wills. That was distorted and messed up bad in the church for a lot of years. Uh, There's one will being modified by three words, good, perfect, and acceptable. That's God's will. God's will is good, it's perfect, and it's acceptable. Anything aside from that is not God's will. But when we're not in God's will, we don't have three wills. How many of you remember hearing some of that junk about the permissive will of God? As if God was somehow, somehow, somehow tolerant and less acceptance, you know, or lowers His uh, mode of acceptance even though He nailed His Son to a tree. That's not biblical. And that's not in the Greek. So God, if you are not in the will of God... You're experiencing His mercy. That's what we're experiencing. We're not in an alternate will that God's good with. That's not how this works. God wants the very best for every one of us. And He is so persistent with the Holy Spirit that He takes situations, He takes circumstances, He speaks to us through His Word, by the Spirit, through life events, all kinds of different situations to bring us into that place where we're in His will. And when we're in His will, we're good and acceptable and perfect. That's the will that God has for every one of us. Anything less than that is not tolerance, it's mercy. Can you say amen? That's how God works. And, and then He says, um, the king is cut off in verse 7, for as for Samaria, like a twig on the water... The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and thistle shall grow on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and the hills fall on us. Now that's what it's going to be like when God comes back to judge the earth for sure. And there are people that experience tough times like that even now. When God starts pouring out His judgment, if you think dealing with the devil's tough, you start dealing with the God who starts pouring out His judgment in righteousness. See, the devil's off the mark. He's crazy. He's sinful. He's evil. But everything God does, does He does in righteousness. In other words, it's right. It's justifiable. It's the way it should be. And so God, He's going to tear down their high places. They're going to be saying, Cup, the mountains fall on us. O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. They were, there they stood the battle of Gibeah against the children of, uh, of iniquity. Do not overtake them. When it is my desire, I will chasten them. People shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions. Ephraim is, tra- is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain. But I harness her fair neck. I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow. Jacob shall break his clods. These people are going to go from feeling like life's great to being on the bottom. And it wasn't that God wants to take His people into captivity. He don't want them to suffer. That's not God's design or desire is for His people to suffer or to go into captivity. 
But sometimes that's the means to get their attention. Because we got to remember, sin is deceitful. And it causes people to be blinded. And when that happens, God sometimes has to go to extreme situations to get people's attention. Now, I'm gonna, uh, I've shared this before. It's probably been a while. But uh, I had some folks I was praying for whom I really loved many years ago. And I was on the creek bank praying. And I was praying. And, and you can get in those religious prayers if you're not careful, you know. And I, I was praying about a lot of things. And this particular family I was burdened with. And uh, <clears throat> I remember saying to the Lord, I started praying, Lord, bless them. Bless them, you know. And, uh, and it's like I run into a wall and the Holy Spirit said, bless them. And this family was the most blessed family out of all the families in our family. In, in material and every other way. And the Holy Spirit said to me, bless them. He said, I have blessed them. He said, you need to be praying that I'll break them. Now that's a hard prayer to pray when it's somebody you really love. And they were very kind and loving to me. I had a good relationship with them. But I knew in my knower that they were headed down a wrong path. And the Holy Spirit checked me and said, Bless them. I have blessed them. You need to pray that I break them. That's hard to pray. You think about your... Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a close friend that you see the enemies captivated for whatever reason. And you need to pray that prayer where God will break them. Listen, brokenness is all through the Bible. And we all need to go through brokenness. If you go to the alabaster box of the woman who came in to wash Jesus' feet. See, here's what we got to get out of as believers I, mean, I, I, I hate to burst everybody's bubble, and I know we're getting, probably in a couple months we'll have that new edition. But you know all this is going to burn to the ground? Cheer up, saints. It's all going to burn to the ground. <laughs> Every single bit of it's going to burn to the ground. ground. The, the, the value is not the alabaster box, not the buildings, not the stuff. The values of what's inside of it. And in order for us to have that brokenness, you and I are not as valuable as we think we are. We're not the Johnny-come-lately that the devil don't know how to deal with. We are a vessel. What's beautiful about you and I is Christ inside of us. The world don't need to see another Matthew Robbins. The world needs to see Jesus Christ. And so this woman breaks this alabaster box. But we got too many Christians thinking the value is the box. The box needs to be broken so that the fragrance of the Holy Spirit can come out of us and we can fill the room with that fragrance. That's what happens. And so God takes us, and it's what He's been doing with me in the last few weeks, takes us on journeys of brokenness. And the reason He does that is because my fragrance stinks. I have to take showers every day. But the fragrance of the Holy Spirit will change people's lives. And if we'll allow the Lord to break us along life's journey, and we'll cooperate with Him, that's what will change people's lives. Matthew Robbins don't change anybody's life. But the Holy Spirit through me can.
And I want to be that vessel. I don't want to hold on to the box, thinking the value's in the alabaster box. I want the box to be broken. And, of course, a lot of people got upset, didn't they? They said, and they acted all religious about it, right? Was it Judas? said, ah, that could have been sold. Give to the poor. He didn't care about the poor. We know later in the Scripture, he was stealing out of the money bag. That's why he wanted that to be sold, so that money would come into the treasury that he was carrying around for Jesus, so he could scam some of it. He didn't care about the poor. But this woman understood that somebody more important than the poor was in front of her. Somebody more important than any other man she'd known or any other family member was in front of her. She knew that this was the day to pour a whole year's worth of wages out on his feet. That's what most theologians believe it was. A whole year's worth of wages she dumped on his feet. Poured it out on him. She understood what was going on. The value was not in that alabaster box. The value, you, you think you're good at something? Do I think I'm good at something? That's not where our value's at. Our value's in, the, in the, being a vessel that is so broken that the Holy Spirit can come out of us and be, and, and be real to others. And so she comes in, does the right thing. He's over there wanting to skim money off the top. He could care less about that. And how about Jesus? You want to know the most settled, confident in His Father, unmovable person that ever walked the face of the earth? Jesus Christ. How many of you would let the thief keep the money bag? Didn't even face Jesus. He let him keep it the whole three and a half years. He didn't turn him into the prison. He didn't call the police. He didn't phase him because he knew who was in charge. That's where I want to live. And that helped me. What happened to me in Texas has helped me to know who. I already knew who was in charge. In fact, I told the surgeon that. I said, I know who's in charge. I said, I don't have any problem with that. But I'm, I've got my feet planted even deeper into that. To watch how he went before me out there and orchestrated events like that, it has made me just say, I know in whom I believed, and I know that he will be faithful to finish what he has started. Can somebody give him praise? I know something else. I know the devil hates this church and this ministry too. You know what? I got news for him in case he didn't already know. I hate him. <laughs> I hate the devil. <clears throat> so, <laughs> then he says, now he's going to give them something, something to kind of pull themselves out, right? Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. Man, that's our time. I hear that, don't you, in the Spirit? We need to be seeking the Lord now. Till he comes and rains righteousness on you. What if we had a whole church full of people that laid all their material wants and all their desires down and started coming to church saying, Lord, we're not here to seek your hand. We're here to seek your face. And we want you to rain righteousness down on us. That's what we want to see come down on our lives. We want to see it come down on our families. He says, till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies. And boy, that's our country, right? Because you've trusted in your own way. There's that hook. In the multitude of the mighty men. Say it with me. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. See, they're trusting in the wrong thing. 
Therefore tumult will arise among your people and your fortresses and be plundered and uh, Shalman plundered at Beth Arbel and the day of the battle and the mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness at dawn the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. God keeps trying to get some of them to come his way. Now listen to this and, and just start thinking about America and these as we read through this, some of this next chapter. When Israel was a child, I loved him. I can just think how much God was excited about America when we said, wait, we're going to worship you over here. We're going to make that our number one priority. I can just imagine how God was feeling about uh, the people that risked their lives to do that. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of Europe, he called us. There's no way this nation is where it's at without God orchestrating it. So he called us out. There's some similarities between what happened to Israel and what happened to America, which will make us kind of pause and sigh when we see how this turns out. I think America, let me say it differently. I believe, as I was studying and praying today, I believe that America is that last line, the last nation. And once we fully turned away from God, I think that'll be the last straw. We've been blessed so much, but we've turned away from God in a lot of ways as well. I taught Ephraim to walk. They said they sacrificed the bells, they burned incense to carving. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. What if, we, what if God would just open the, open the page and let you see how many things He's done for you and I that we don't even know about? I, I, I'm ashamed, Lord. And I repent right here in front of the whole country and world for not reflecting on just how much you do for us that we don't even realize. Forgive me, Lord. For not being more sensitive to how much you protect us and do for us. And we take it for granted. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. I was to them as those who take a yoke from the neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king. So I'm not sending him back to captivity. But he's still going into captivity. Now that's interesting because Isaiah is going to start talking about all that. Remember? He starts talking about Sennacherib, Sennacherib and all that, about how he's going to be used by God uh, because they refuse to repent. That's their problem. <coughs> One of the great I want to stress this to all of us because I think sometimes Christians get, walk with God long enough that they get afraid to repent. You know, they're, they're afraid if they repent, it'll make them look bad. Am I talking? Well, I've been serving the Lord 20 years. What's people going to think if I go up front and repent? <laughs> What's God going to think? You see what their problem And we read this over and over. Their problem is, he says, because they won't repent. They refuse to repent. And some people get older and wiser. At least they think they're wiser. And I've been doing this so long. What's people going to think if I repent? Do you know... Two of the greatest people in the Bible, Peter 
and David or David. You know what stood out about those two guys more than anything? They were some of the best repenters in the whole Bible. Those guys knew how to repent. And it didn't matter how young they were or how old they were. And they, they knew they were flesh. These two guys here, especially David, and he was a man after God's own heart. He, these guys knew how to repent. Uh, the secret to maintaining a good, close walk with God and being refreshed is being a good repenter. I mean, that's what the altar's for. When you come in the, the tabernacle, the first thing you're met with is that brazen altar. That's where repentance takes place. And the reason God does that is because there's a whole journey past that brazen altar that God wants to interact with you and have fellowship with you. And He knows if repentance don't start it off, it will interfere with everything else. And it's not that God don't love us and care about us. But I'm going to tell you something. If you've got something that's unrepented for, it will nag you like crazy. And it's not like God's up there holding it over our head, but we allow it. He knows how that works. And that's why he set up the brazen altar the first thing. So when you come into that brazen altar, you get any stuff between you and God out of the way. So when you go to the table of showbread or whatever, the laver, the altar of incense, when you go to those places, there's nothing interfering with that. Right? I can remember when my parents had asked me not to do something, and I did it. I went against what they told me to do. I disobeyed. Well, when they came home, or when I got around them, maybe I was somewhere else and I'd done something that they'd asked me not to do, and I disobeyed. When I got around them, I felt awkward. I didn't want to go sit beside them on the couch. Uh, You know, it's an awkward feeling. So God knows that things that are unrepented for hinder our fellowship with Him. What a great dad. That He would design it in such a way that He he don't want anything hindering my fellowship with Him. Or the same for any of us, right? And so that's what happens. You feel that, that guilt and that waywardness, that separation. And everybody says, it's what the preacher thinks. I believe that's what Jesus felt on the cross for the first time in his life. He didn't have any sin. He didn't know any sin. The Bible said he had no sin. He's a perfect lamb, right? But somewhere, and this is what the preacher thinks, somewhere on that cross, I believe God laid all our sin on him and he felt for the first time what it was like to be separated from the Father. Can you imagine that? And then out of his mouth comes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he knew his father wasn't going to forsake him. But when the sins of the world were laid on his shoulders, and he felt the separation that that causes, what other response would you have? Because he knew he hadn't sinned. Right? He knew he had obeyed the Father. And all of our sin and guilt and shame, Isaiah said, was laid on top of him. And so he felt, I believe he felt that separation for that moment. What sin does to somebody. And when you think about that, then you can start having compassion on lost people. Because they're blind 
and they're separated from God. And they don't know any different. Could you imagine? You that have walked with the Lord and that know His love and His forgiveness, you know how to repent, all those kind of things. Oh, it's such a good feeling, isn't it, to lay down at night and to know that you have peace that passes all understanding, that, that if you've done something wrong, you know as soon as you ask, He forgave it, and there's no hindrance. Can you imagine the countless millions of people that can't lay down like that? Some of them's in your family. Some of them's in yours and mine. Some of them's across the street tonight. They don't know peace. They don't know it. They don't know what it's like to be have the the shal- word shalom <laughs> means the cessation of againstness. That's the bottom line of shalom, cessation of againstness. In other words, if you've got shalom with God, He's no longer against you. He's for you. He's always against sin. So if you're in sin. You're at odds with God. But He's made a way out of that, right? He Through His Son. And so the cessation of againstness is what gives us that peace that passes all understanding. And you know, I've tried to train people this over years, everywhere I've been, that when, you, when I say to you, Shalom, in a greeting way, I'm speaking a mouthful. If I say to Marshall, Shalom, Marshall, if I use the word shalom, Marshall immediately knows two things when I say shalom to him. If I say shalom, Marshall, he knows that I'm saying to him everything's good between he and I from my perspective and everything's good between me and God. I'm saying that to Marshall by using that word. And if Marshall says it back, then we're good. Cessation of againstness. That's the value and the beauty of salvation. Then he says, he says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? Let me back up. I went ahead too far. He says, because they refuse to repent, and the sword shall clash in the cities, devour their districts, consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me, though they call the Most High, None at all exalt him. Let's use him as a byword. That's what happened in our country. One of the most disturbing things I've noticed in the last six months is how now that if a woman cannot get an abortion, that is called a moral issue. If she can't kill her baby, that's called a moral issue. I'm like, that is so distorted from God's word. And I, that, you think about that, that now. <clears throat> that if a baby can't be killed, if somebody don't have the freedom to kill the baby, they're calling that a moral issue. Abortion's not a political issue to me. It's biblical. That's all it is to me. And to call that a moral issue, I'm going to take you to Isaiah chapter 20. Now remember these two lines here. He says uh, they have a divided heart, right, in chapter 10. In chapter 11 here, he said they're bent on backsliding, Right? They don't want to repent. Think of those two things, and let's go to Isaiah chapter 20 before we close tonight. In Isaiah chapter 20, we're going to see uh, some stuff that's very similar coming on the heels of what Hosea had been prophesying. Uh, 
Actually, I want to back up to verse 11 of chapter 5 of Isaiah. Uh, Chapter, uh, verse 20 talks about that. But he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them. And that's our culture, right? That's America. Not, not just with, with multiple substances, right? Whatever, whatever it means. Somebody starts shooting up in the morning and by the end of the day, whatever. That's, that, that was happening in Israel. It's happening in America continually. I saw, I felt so sorry for this police person uh, somewhere up in north of here. They were arresting somebody and patting them down. And that person had so much fentanyl on them. They had to resuscitate that policeman three times to keep him alive. That's how dangerous that stuff is. And now they're putting it in like candy for our children to eat this Halloween. I mean, this is an evil world. Evil, evil, evil world. And I know a lot of that stuff's coming from other places. But I want to say something. There's people in this country that are supporting it. And that's why if we wouldn't support it, and want to make money off of it, off the death of our own people, they couldn't bring it in here if there wasn't a market for it. But there's some evil people in this country, just like there are in China and everywhere else that's doing it. Because they're going hand in hand. There are people making money, I understand, from China to Mexico, but they're also making money in here. Somebody in here has to get it and distribute it. And there's some evil people in here just like there are in Mexico and China and everywhere else. And I'm telling you, I'm about ready for God to put an end to it. Of course, he don't use my timetable. Look at verse, it says, that inflames them all in. The harp and the strings, uh, the tambourine, the flute, the wine are in their feast, but they do not regard the work of the Lord. See, that same thing. said, they talk about me in Hosea, but they don't exalt me. And that's what Israel did. They had feasts that were from God, and they kicked God out of them and just kept having their feast. Uh, Look at us. We've been founded on God and we keep kicking Him out of everything. Therefore, in verse 13, therefore my people have gone into captivity. And you can be in captivity without being behind bars. We have multitudes of people in this country that are in bondage to one thing or another. And the enemy has captivated them. Because they have no knowledge, their honorable men are famished and the multitude dried up with thirst. The honorable men, they don't even. They don't even think straight. Therefore, Sheol, or the grave, has enlarged itself, opened its mouth beyond measure. He says, The glory of their multitude and their pomp and all the jubilance shall descend into it. People shall be brought down. Each man shall be humble in the eyes of the lofty. Shall be humble, but the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. And God, who is holy, shall be hallowed in righteousness. Then the lambs shall feed in their pasture, and the waste places of the fat ones strangers shall eat. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if it were a cart rope. Just make light of everything and and legislate things that are against God's word. They say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to me that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe. Anytime you see a woe. You better woe. I mean, that, it's a heavy word in the Hebrew. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe who, uh, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And look at this next line. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. 
and prudent in their own sight. Now that, that's basically what we're talking about in Hosea. They got to the place where they're just doing their own thing. Yeah, that'll be good. That'll be good. We'll just do it that way. We'll, we'll do this. We'll do that. We'll, we'll harvest this. We'll put our money there without even talking to God about it. That was the thing that I was stressing. Of course, I was talking to a spirit-filled believer with my thoracic surgeon, but that was the thing I was stressing to her when we were trying to make this decision. Listen, I really want to hear from God. It's not a matter of who's in charge, and I understand you, you trust the Lord. I, I said, I just want to really hear from God. I don't like to do things without hearing from God. That's just how I've patterned my life. I want to make sure that I hear from God. She fully understood that. That's what we cannot lose as believers. We're living in the last days. We need to hear from God now more than we ever have. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we've had together. We thank you for your word. I thank you for how Hosea speaks to us and ministers to us here in this country. And so many lessons we can learn from Hosea. Uh, and I want to learn them, Lord. I want my life. I want everything that I do to glorify you. How every facet of my life, Lord. We're not living for tomorrow, no way. All we have is the promise of is today. So help us to be sensitive to you. Follow you today, Lord. Hear your voice in every facet of our lives so that everything we do, say, and engage ourselves in will bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Let me give you a few. Of the-